a quick note about today's show. Usually our episodes stand alone, and you can listen to them in any order you like. But today's is a bit different. You should probably listen to our last episode, episode 51. It's called Money Tree, first, and then come back and listen to this one. Okay, here's the show. If my mother was a psychopath, she didn't feel guilt. In our last episode, we brought you the story of a woman named Axton Betts Hamilton, who was the victim of identity theft. And only a few years ago, Axton discovered that the person who had stolen her identity, and her father's, and her grandfather's, for decades, racking up half a million dollars in debt, was her own mother. Axton is still trying to make sense of how her mother could do something so horrible for such a long time, not appear to feel guilty or want to come clean, even at the very end of her life. But Axton's been doing some research and now believes her mother may have been a psychopath. A psychopath will cognitively know the difference between right and wrong, so I believe my mother knew on an academic level that what she was doing was illegal. But in terms of understanding on an emotional level the consequences that she was creating for me and for my dad and for my grandfather, I don't think she had a real recognition of that. I don't think she could have a recognition of that. Now, does that mean that I'm defending her? No, what she did was wrong. But I, I do think this psych, these psychopathic traits that she had, I think, are indicative of a severe psychological illness that she was able to successfully hide for her entire life. And this led Axton to think about herself and how, over the years, people have told her that she doesn't show much emotion. I immediately thought, okay, I am essentially 50% my mother. Her genes are in me. Do I have this? At some point, am I going to start exhibiting these characteristics? And I went to my doctor just completely freaked out about this and said, am I at risk? If I am, what do I do? And she said, there's no way you have psychopathy. And I said, well, how do you know that? That's really said, funny. You're trying to kind of convince her. Well, and, and, she, and she said, you can't because you have a severe anxiety disorder and psychopaths don't feel anxiety. The people who are most sensitive to these symptoms are the least likely to be psychopaths because you're worried about having, having something like this, whereas a true psychopath wouldn't really care. This is Dr. Ronald Shouten, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Law and Psychiatry Service at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's both a lawyer and a doctor, and he's the author of a book called Almost a Psychopath. How many people are we talking about out there that are true psychopaths? True psychopaths is probably about 1% of the population. So if we have 300 million people in the United States, that gives us about 3 million. 3 million true psychopaths walking around. Mm-hmm. But not all psychopaths are dangerous. Uh, correct. And I would argue that probably the majority of them are not physically dangerous in terms of violent crimes. However, it's important to think about the following distinction. We consider psychopaths as either successful psychopaths or failed psychopaths. And the failed psychopaths are the people who end up in prison. 
the people that you're more likely to encounter are the successful psychopaths. Part of what makes a successful psychopath successful is that they're so friendly and charming, the psychopathic traits can be undetectable. Ron Shouten says that many of us will meet or interact with a psychopath on a daily basis. But how would we ever know? I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Psychopathy was actually referred to even before the days of psychoanalysis as moral insanity. I mean, this, this is a concept that's known in multiple cultures and has been known for and, and talked about for at least hundreds of years. The word psychopathy is derived from Greek, translating to something like soul disease or soul suffering to describe people who are in touch with reality but don't have any sense of morality. It's the idea that these are people who know the difference between right and wrong, but they just don't care about it, and their behavior is unconstrained by that. So uh, how does a psychopath become a psychopath? I mean, are you born with the characteristics, with chemicals that, you know, what makes you a psychopath? Uh, Nature and nurture. We have something called primary psychopathy, and it's genetically linked. Um, There's also secondary psychopathy, people who may have some inclinations to this, but because of the environment in which they grow up, they learn that the only way to survive is a dog-eat-dog approach to the world and others in it, and also really just have the empathy burned out of them. So, so psychopaths are overrepresented in the prison population, right? Well, compared to the general population, yes. As many as 15% of female inmates and 25 to 30% of male inmates meet the definition of psychopathy. But the vast majority of people in prison are not psychopaths. And there are plenty of people, free in the world, who, whether they break the law or not, do meet the criteria. My name is John Ronson, and I'm an author of, of a number of books, including the book The Psychopath Test. John Ronson spent three years exploring how a person is diagnosed as a psychopath, and he met several times with the most famous man in psychopathy research, Robert Hare. Robert Hare is the, is the father of modern psychopathy diagnosis. He was a prison psychiatrist and, and a fan of Harvey Cleckley, who was the previous father of modern psychopathy diagnoses. And, and Hare devised... The checklist, the PCLR checklist, which is the gold standard for psychopathy diagnosis, it's a 20-point checklist that's now used all over the world. It's used by hospitals and prisons and parole boards and can be used to predict whether someone will re-offend. The checklist consists of 20 items. A person is scored with a 0, 1, or 2. If the trait is not present, then you get a 0. If it's partially or possibly present, then you get a 1. And if it's definitely present, then you get a 2. The maximum score you can get is 40. People who are in the 30 to 40 range are characterized as true psychopaths. We asked John Ronson to walk us through the 20 items on Robert Hare's checklist. Item 1 is glibness, superficial charm. And then item 2, grandiose sense of self-worth. 
I remember when I met a corp, a CEO called uh, Jane Sorrell Dunlap, we both looked up because he was standing underneath a giant oil painting of himself. Uh, item three, need for stimulation, proneness to boredom. Item four, pathological lying. And they're not in the least bit embarrassed when they're caught lying. Item five, cunning manipulative. Item six, lack of remorse or guilt. Item seven, shallow affect, which is an inability to experience a, a range of emotions. Item eight is the, is the big one. Uh, that's callous, lack of empathy. The lack of empathy, I suppose, is the, is the main psychopathic trait from which all others follow. Item nine, parasitic lifestyle. Item 10, poor behavioral controls. Item 11, promiscuous sexual behavior. That one always surprised me a bit because, I mean, my promiscuous days are a long, long time in my past, but I look back on them with some fondness. Item 12, early behavior problems. Um, again, this is quite a big one because the symptoms begin to manifest themselves around the ages of 10 to 12. Uh, so kind of extreme um, aberrant behavior like breaking another kid's arm in the schoolyard or torturing animals or setting fire to the house, getting yourself expelled from school. So, you know, like big stuff. Uh, item 13, lack of realistic long-term goals. Item 14, impulsivity. Item 15, irresponsibility. Item 16, failure to accept responsibility for own actions. Item 17, many short-term marital relationships. Item 18, juvenile delinquency. Item 19, revocation of conditional release, which means if you're a criminal psychopath and you get released, you uh, go back to jail because um, you violated the terms of your parole. And item 20 is criminal versatility. What does that mean? Oh, just you, it's, you, you do a whole range of crimes. It, it kind of seems rather subjective. It's in, I'm glad you brought this up because it's incredibly subjective and it's prone to massive confirmation bias. And the reason is, is because, you know, as human beings, we love nothing more than to declare other people insane. So we want to define other people as psychopaths, especially people that we don't like. I mean, you only have to look at what's happening this election cycle, the, you know, thousands of articles, Donald Trump is a psychopath. In fact, it's kind of psychopathic to declare somebody a psychopath from afar. But of course, you know, everybody's ignoring that. Uh, yeah, I remember one guy who was diagnosed a psychopath said to me, it's so frustrating because I say I feel terrible remorse for what I did. What he did was beat up a, a homeless man. He said, I feel terrible remorse for what I did. But when I say that to people, they say, well, that's typical of the cunning, manipulative psychopath to pretend to feel remorse when they don't. He said it's like witchcraft. It turns everything upside down. One of the reasons John Ronson knows the checklist so well is because he attended one of the diagnostic training courses taught by the creator of the checklist, Robert Hare. Oh, it, it was just fascinating. I, um, it was in a marquee in West Wales, 
Obviously, I was the only journalist there. Journalists tend not to go on these courses. Um, Robert Hare was kind of very kind and generous to allow me to to sit in on this course. It's usually prison officers, care workers, people who have, you know, huge power over people's lives, over their freedom. So, so yeah, so I, I was on, I was in this marquee and it was just great. It was exciting. We'd watch these videos that Bob Hare would show us of uh, interviews with people in prison, these case studies. I remember one time Robert Hare surprised us. We, he was just giving a talk about something and he surprised us by flashing onto the screen behind his head a close-up of a man who had been shot in the face and his face had just was just, you know, decimated. And... All of us in the in the crowd went Ugh! because our amygdala shot signals of fear and distress and remorse up and down to our central nervous system, which shows that we're not psychopaths. Uh, I suffer from anxiety, which means I have an overperforming amygdala. My amygdala is constantly shooting signals of fear and distress up and down to my uh, central nervous system. Um, anxiety, I think, is the is the neurological opposite of psychopathy because with psychopaths neurologists say their their amygdala underperforms so when a psychopath sees a picture of a blown apart face they don't respond like i did with horror they respond with something else which was which is curiosity they respond with curiosity so that's the part of the brain that matters here. Will you explain that, the amygdala? Yeah, the amygdala, it's, a, uh, it's the part of the brain that registers fear and distress and remorse and anxiety and guilt. It shoots these signals up and down to the central nervous system, which always makes me think that, you know, fear, distress, remorse, guilt, these are the feelings that keep us good. And psychopaths don't have those feelings which is the reason why it's not a problem for them to transgress. It always makes me think that psychopathy is one of the most pleasant feeling of all the mental disorders, because all of those feelings that we have that keep us good, they're they're unpleasant feelings. This brings us to the question of treatment. Can you teach distress, remorse, guilt? Can you teach empathy? Back in the 60s, an eccentric young doctor named Elliot Barker set out to try. He traveled all over the world exploring different therapeutic approaches, new therapy in Palm Springs and radical psychiatry programs in London. And he went on to get a job at the Oak Ridge Psychiatric Hospital in Ontario. Elliot Barker's idea was that psychopaths bury their madness beneath a veneer of normality. And if you could somehow get the madness to the surface, you could treat it. So his idea, having been on this odyssey, were LSD-fueled, mammoth-naked psychotherapy sessions. So he got a whole bunch of people who had been diagnosed as psychopaths in this ward in, in a hospital in Canada. And he made them strip naked, he'd quite often uh, tie them to each other and he'd give them these uh, high doses of LSD. And they would go through these long LSD sessions 
And the idea was hopefully that the LSD and the nakedness and just the kind of extremity of this situation would bring the madness to the surface. Uh, he had straws protruding from the wall, so if any of them got hungry, they could suck liquid food through the straws in the walls while they were naked and tied to each other and high on LSD. Anyway, amazingly enough, after all of these sessions, a change began to come over these people who had been diagnosed as psychopaths. They started to seem much more empathetic. And in fact, there's some, some cameras were allowed into Oak Ridge and they filmed these psychopaths saying to each other, you know, there's such beauty in your eyes and, and I love you so much. And, and it really seemed as if they'd become much more empathetic. And then they were released into the world. And a number of years later, I think about 10 years later, somebody did a long-term recidivism study on how many of these people who had gone on to had gone on to reoffend. And usually high-scoring psychopaths would um, go on to reoffend 60% of the time. But the ones who had been through Elliot Barker's naked LSD psychotherapy sessions went on to reoffend 80% of the time. So it actually made them worse. And one of them, a guy called Peter Woodcock, was asked, well, you know, how come it made you worse? And he said, well, it, it taught us how to fake empathy better. Elliot Barker's program was shut down. And since then, treatment approaches have been controversial. Turns out, there's no pill for empathy. A 2015 article in the Journal of Behavioral Sciences and the Law reads... Many clinicians have boycotted the idea of even attempting to treat high-risk psychopathic offenders. And a number of corrections authorities have taken the position of, quote, sanctioned untreatability. Pretty much everyone acknowledges that we will recognize ourselves in a couple of the items on the hair checklist. How could we not? Who isn't prone to boredom at times or a little self-involved? But what if you recognize yourself or someone you know in more than just a couple? This is the subject of Dr. Shouten's book, Almost a Psychopath. He uses a list of 10 indicators that you or someone you know could be what he calls an almost psychopath. Here they are. Superficially charming and glib with an answer for everything. An impaired ability to understand and appreciate the emotions of others. When faced with a decision, you rationalize a choice that's in your own self-interest. Lying, repeatedly, even when it's not necessary. Conning and manipulative. When you're criticized, it's always someone else's fault. A lack of true remorse when you cause harm to others. Limited capacity to express feelings or maintain relationships. You easily ignore responsibilities. And finally, People and situations exist solely for the purpose of your needs and wants. And the idea is that there are people who have collections of symptoms of various types that don't meet the full criteria for a diagnosis as it's officially listed, but in fact suffer greatly and the people around them suffer as well because of those symptoms. If you... if. If we think that our wife or boss might be an almost psychopath, what should we keep in mind here? Uh, protect yourself. Keep track of what's going on. You maybe keep some notes. Uh, 
about behaviors, experiences that you found odd. Um, there, you know, this notion of gaslighting. These folks will often gaslight their victims, the people in their relationships, so that you're left scratching your head. It's like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I did screw that up. You know, maybe I did forget that. Maybe I was supposed to do whatever the task was involved or, or to behave in a certain way. If someone else is putting blame on you, I mean, you in that relationship, you want to keep track of those things so that you can go back at a later date, especially if you get some help and get some consultation, so you can walk through these events. Because most of us tend to brush these things off. Again, our better nature is to think the best of other people and certainly not to think negatively. And so we'll tend to dismiss some of these events, some of these experiences that we have. And then only much later, when you look at the whole list, you go, oh my goodness, look what has been going on here this entire time. One time, I, I asked Martha Stout, who's a leading um, Harvard psychologist in this field, and I said, if you're married to a psychopath, what's your advice? And she said, my advice is leave, just leave them. She said, you can't hurt their feelings because there aren't any feelings to hurt. But how could you ever know for sure that there aren't feelings to hurt? And how in the world do you make that decision when it's someone you love? If I had met you back in 2005, would you have said, I asked about, you know, your relationship with your mother, would you have said, yeah, we're close, she's, you know, a great mother, she was a great mother growing up, what would you have said? Oh, I, I would have agreed to all of that. Um, I would have said we're very close, she's supportive of me, that we talk every day, and, you know, that it was a normal relationship. And based on what I knew growing up, I thought what we had was normal. Criminal is produced by Lauren Spohr, Nadia Wilson, and me. Audio mixed by Rob Byers. Alice Wilder is our intern. Julianne Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of the best podcasts around. Shows like Love and Radio, their new season is just out. Love and Radio is a show that doesn't tell you how to feel just presents you with stories that unspool as you listen. These are complicated, intense portraits with incredible sound design. No one else is doing anything like it. That's Love and Radio. Go listen. Radiotopia from PRX is supported by the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. And thanks to AdCirc for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is criminal. Radio Tokyo.